From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about an effort to get the state Supreme Court to recognize the right to an abortion as part of the state constitution. Then we'll explore the impact of generative AI and the ways we've already incorporated AI into our lives. We are all using AI every day in our lives. If you have Netflix, if you have Spotify, if you have any streaming service, you're using AI. We'll speak with Felice Green, who was honored with a Unity Award for her work to revitalize Milwaukee's Sherman Park neighborhood. I wanted to be able to participate in making a change so that we also, in urban areas, could go back to having a beautiful landscapes with beautiful pocket parks. Plus, in Wandering Wisconsin, we'll help you plan a trip to a former stagecoach inn that was part of the Underground Railroad. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin filed a new petition last week, asking the Wisconsin Supreme Court to find that rights under the state constitution, including the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, include the right to an abortion. It's another challenge to an 1849 law in the state that some argue bans abortion. Attorney General Josh Call has already challenged that law, and proceedings in that ongoing case have left an 1895 Roe v. Wade era abortion law in effect. That means Wisconsin currently allows abortions up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with UW law professor Howard Schwaber to learn about this latest action on abortion in the state. Unpack a little bit how the Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is framing their question and how opponents to abortion rights are framing their question. A year ago, a district court judge uh, ruled that the 1849 statute banning feticide did not apply to abortions. It only applied to unwilling act, the destruction of a fetus against the will of the pregnant woman. That meant that that law had nothing to do with regulating abortions, so a later 1985 statute remained in force, and under that statute, women in Wisconsin had a right to abortion under certain circumstances and within certain limits. Each side is now pushing back against that ruling, and each side wants the state Supreme Court to jump in and answer it right away. Now, the court currently is understood to have a liberal majority, a four to three liberal majority, so the expectation is that this court is likely to find that the state constitution guarantees rights that include the right to abortion. If they do that, uh, the pro-life side will then use this as an issue in the next judicial election. Brad Schimmel is running to take one of the liberal seats on the court in order to restore a conservative balance. And he has a long history of being staunchly anti-abortion and has endorsed a position that said that abortions should be banned in Wisconsin in every case except where the life of the pregnant woman is involved. Even among conservatives, uh, a rather hardline uh, pro-life, he has hardline pro-life views. So from the perspective of the pro-life camp, uh, getting the Supreme Court to rule, even if they rule in favor of Planned Parenthood, clarifies the issues and enables them to launch their campaign to retake the court. From, of course, Planned Parenthood and the pro-choice perspective, a court ruling in their favor is beneficial. There are a number of moving parts to this. The court could rule, for example, that the Wisconsin state constitution does not guarantee rights that include a right to abortion, but the 1985 statute remains in force, right? Because just saying that there's no right to choose an abortion guaranteed in the Constitution doesn't mean that the legislature has to ban it. 
at that point, the onus would be on the legislator to quickly undo the 1985 law and pass an abortion ban before the next election in November, which will be held with non-gerrymandered districts. In other words, in November, there's a good chance that the Republicans will either lose their majority or at least have a much, much narrower majority in the state assembly. So if the Republicans in the state assembly wanted to pass a ban on abortion following the state's Supreme Court ruling that the Constitution allowed that, they would want to do so very quickly. And of course, the next legislature, if it were to be controlled by Democrats, would move to undo that statute right away. Okay, let's unpack that. So just rewinding a little bit. So we're talking about Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin bringing a lawsuit that there are rights ensconced in the state constitution that would include the right to an abortion. Can you unpack the arguments there? Like, why would somebody bring that claim? Oh, uh, there are long-standing series of arguments that are very familiar from federal cases. Uh, there are two basic arguments. One, and, and I'm, I'm putting these in broad terms because the, the, the specifics vary, but they fall into these two general categories. One is it has to do with the basic notion of liberty, sometimes called the right to privacy. There are certain areas of decision-making which the government should not interfere. We don't believe in a totalitarian state. To borrow a phrase from Justice Kennedy, the state is not omnipresent in the home. Uh, and you can pull up lots of phrases from lots of cases talking about the idea that there are areas of intimate and private decision-making over which the government should have no control. So that's basically the privacy right argument. The second argument has to do with equal protection of the laws or equality in general. And the argument is that laws restricting or prohibiting, of course, abortion uh, impose burdens on women in ways that are not true of men. And therefore, these laws, by definition, uh, fall unequally. And that violates basic principles of equality. Those are the two basic arguments. Planned Parenthood is, is trying to ask the court to consider both of them in, di in different ways under the Wisconsin Constitution. And either can be made a, a, a plausible and persuasive argument. The counter argument is that, well, yes, these laws burden women unequally from men, but that's virtual biology. Women have babies and men don't, or women become pregnant and men don't. Uh, and therefore, that's not an inequality in the law. Uh, that's a background fact of the world uh, over which legislatures have no control, and therefore courts shouldn't take cognizance of it on the equality side. And on the privacy or liberty side, the argument goes, sure, there are areas the government in which the government should not intrude. But we've always recognized that, that there are places where the government should intrude. Think about um, child abuse, right? At one time, the prevalent idea was what goes on in the home is no one's business except the father who is the master of the house. We don't think that way anymore. Uh, and the same goes for spousal abuse and any number of things that occur in a home setting. And according to the argument, the decision to have an abortion is one of those things in which the state should be able to intervene. And then you can end that argument several ways, because a fetus is a person, or even if a fetus is not a person because the state has a really important interest in the issue, or um, the issue is one that is so profoundly important that the state should not leave it to private decision making. Those are the way the two sides present their arguments in broad terms. The specifics vary with what statute or what constitutional provision you happen to be relying on. You're tuned into Lake Effect. This is Maya Jan Silver speaking with UW Law Professor Howard Schwaber. And in Wisconsin, you had mentioned, you know, currently we have a Republican-controlled legislature and they get to make the laws. How would that interact with the ruling by the state Supreme Court? Were they to agree with Planned Parenthood? Oh, well, if the state uh, Supreme Court were to agree with Planned Parenthood, uh, no right is absolute. Saying something is a right doesn't mean the government has no business regulating it whatsoever. 
Uh, my favorite example is the right to free speech. There's no theory of the right to free speech that says you have a right to say, give me your wallet or I'll shoot you. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of things that are regulated, even though they fall in an area described as a right. So saying that there are rights that include abortion and the choice of abortion does not mean no regulation is possible. It could mean that, but it need not by any means. The almost certain meaning would be um, that it will be very, very much harder, very much more difficult for the legislature to enact a law that restricts abortion and have that law survive judicial review in a court. The situation becomes more complicated given that we've just adopted new voting districts in Wisconsin, which have undone the Republican gerrymander. So that for the first time in 10 years, in the elections in November, Democrats have a chance of taking control of the legislature, or even if they don't, uh, certainly the Republican majority will be smaller. So the window of opportunity for Republicans in the legislature to pass really strict restrictions on abortion if Planned Parenthood loses before the state Supreme Court is very narrow. If Planned Parenthood wins before the state Supreme Court, then the legislature's hands are effectively tied. And again, I would assume that that would then become an issue in the next round of elections in which Republicans would try to mobilize pro-life voters by saying, you know, we must have a conservative court, we must have a conservative legislature, otherwise women will have the right to abortion and that would be a bad thing. And of course, Democrats will mobilize in the opposite way, saying you must keep a liberal court and you must keep a democratic legislature in order to preserve abortion rights. One of the things that is that has been true thus far since Dobbs is that abortion remains a highly mobilizing issue. It's unclear how long that will be true. One has to imagine that at some point states like Wisconsin will end up with laws that are acceptable to enough of the voting population that this will cease to be a major mobilizing issue for purposes of elections. But we're nowhere near that moment yet. And for this coming cycle in November, this is clearly going to be one of the big uh, hot button issues uh, that the electorate has to, has to think about. And the Cliff's Notes version for people who are like too long, didn't read. There are two cases right now dealing with abortion in Wisconsin. What do we need to know about how those are shaping up? It's really one case. In two separate petitions, both sides have asked the state Supreme Court to step in and rule, and we'll certainly treat that as a single case. I think it would. I, I think there's a great deal of political pressure on the on the court to take this up and answer it, because everybody, regardless of their views about abortion, wants to hear this question answered rather than having it linger in the courts of appeal and go through motions for injunctions and you know stays pending further review and so on. Uh, both sides want the issue resolved before the next electoral cycle for political reasons, and both sides want some clarity as to what the rules are going forward for legal reasons. So I think there's a great deal of political pressure on the court to take up this case and issue a ruling. And if they do, I, I would think that ruling would come out um, probably in the spring. Were the ruling to you know, side with the uh, reproductive rights activists how would you anticipate the law would change or the reality on the ground would change for people? I think, honestly, the most likely outcome is no change at all. I think the most likely outcome is that the current state Supreme Court will say the Constitution does secure a right to abortion and that the 1985 law is a perfectly valid regulation of, that, of the exercise of that right. As I said earlier, saying something is a right doesn't mean there can be no rules at all about how that right is exercised. That's the kind of outcome that makes legal sense, although one can certainly argue that it doesn't go far enough in one direction or the other, but it's not, there's nothing about it that's 
you know, absurd or wrongheaded. And of course, it's hardly about the politics. And from a political perspective, that's a really sensible outcome that diminishes rather than increases the, the temperature of the issue. And I think justices on the court will pay at least some attention to the question of what the next judicial election cycle is going to look like and not really want to put themselves in a position uh, of making their position on abortion the motivating issue. And just to confirm, the pre-Dobbs in Wisconsin law was this 1985 law, That's right? Correct. So nothing has really changed from then to now, just to confirm for people. Well, that is correct. Although what happened was there was an attempt yeah. to say the 1849 law right, did, did something very different and effectively banned all abortions. That attempt was turned away by a district court. That's the thing that's lurking in the background. During the period before Dobbs, during the period of Roe and Casey, when, when we recognized the U.S. constitutional right that included the right to choose an abortion, uh, the 1985 Wisconsin law was, perfect, was understood to be perfectly in accordance with, that, with the exercise of that constitutional right. And that's why I say that from both a legal and a political perspective, that seems to me a sensible solution uh, and by far the most likely one, even though I understand why neither strong advocates of choice nor strong advocates against choice would be satisfied with that outcome. Thanks so much for delving into this with us, Professor Schwaber, and thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. My pleasure. Howard Schwaber is a law professor at UW-Madison. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. AI has become the latest and greatest development in the tech world. Depending on who you talk with, AI has the potential to save or destroy the world. But as futurist and not barren explorers, generative AI is just the latest development in a decades-long evolution of artificial intelligence. Barron is the CEO of Stashwell and the keynote speaker for UW-Milwaukee's Women Leaders Conference. She joins LikeFX's Joy Powers to talk about the impact of generative AI and how you can start incorporating it into your life. So AI has really become the buzzword of the day in many ways, but as your work explores, AI isn't new. Artificial intelligence is something that we've been working with for quite some time now. This is just really a new evolution of it. So when you're talking about AI, what does that really include? Artificial intelligence has actually been around, and I think most people are super surprised by this, since the 1950s. And like all technology, it has evolved. We are all using AI every day in our lives. If you have Netflix, if you have Spotify, if you have any streaming service, you're using AI. If you are on social media, everything that's served to you is actually served to you by algorithms, which is what AI actually is. Um, if you are using Google Maps or Waze, and again, I have no affiliation with any of these brands, but the reality is that it has become so ubiquitous in our lives that we don't even realize that it is something we're using all the time and it has just permeated our lives. And part of the reason of that, of course, is that we're all using mobile phones and, and smartphones and it powers a lot of that as well. 
So the difference, the reason why all of a sudden everyone is talking about AI is because on November 30th, 2022, the world was introduced to something that had never existed before, and that is called ChatGPT. And that was released by a company called OpenAI, and they really did not anticipate the uptake, the amount of curiosity and desire on part of consumers to jump into this new world. And so the reason we're hearing so much about it is that this new generative AI, and happy to get into a little bit of an explanation of that, that's what makes it super exciting. And that's really what everybody is also freaking out about. So as we look at AI, what we traditionally consider AI, and yeah, this new kind of artificial intelligence that is generative, what are the differences there? What, what makes these different? So the big difference, which is really hard to wrap your head around, is that generative AI, so all of these new platforms, whether it's ChatGPT or Gemini from Google, what they do and what they've enabled us to do for the first time in human history is to allow a human being to talk to a machine in our natural language that never existed before. So basically, the reason it's called generative is unlike traditional AI, which just gives you back information, like I want to go from, from A to B, or I want a song by Taylor Swift. What it does is it actually allows you to ask it a question, and it generates either a text response, an image response, or a video response. And that has never existed before. So the scary part about generative AI is the fact that it actually creates things. Do you think that's part of what people are having some issues with? Because it seems like there is a, a fair amount of fear around this space. It seems like part of it is just fear of the unknown. But yes, this idea that it's not just unknown, but also um, creating something uh, in, in some people's view. There's a historian and philosopher, Yuval Noah Harari, who has written some unbelievable books about the past, but he also looks at AI. And he says that AI has basically broken the uh, code of civilization, which is language. And so what that means is that storytelling is something new that an AI can actually create. And he talks about like one of his worries, for example, is that an AI once it's sophisticated enough, can actually create a new religion and get people to believe in it. An AI can pretend to be a human, and people might actually believe that the AI is human because it actually hacked human language. I think that there is a big question to ask, which is who is actually training the AI? So all AI is, right, is if you imagine, like for anybody who remembers Pac-Man, it just goes through and it's Quote, quote, trained on information. So it goes out and it just finds information and it's being trained on lots and lots of data, right? That's what makes it really amazing when you ask it a question that unlike Google, where it just goes through their data set and it just gives you a list of things, right? Where they're actually trying to sell you things. What AI does is it crawls through vast amount of data, and it provides you the answer that you're looking for. The question is, who makes the decision what data to go capture? 
And where are the guardrails? I think that that's something really important. And the reason I think guardrails are so important is that all of us have had to deal with AI and social media. And we've seen the dangers and we've seen the division that the algorithms cause when they are set up by people who are trying to bring up your rage and the more we rage, the more time we spend online, the more time we spend on that social network, the more we go into an echo chamber. So the fact that social media has never been regulated, and now we're looking at this brand new technology, which is way bigger. I mean, for me, AI is the new electricity. It is going to be something that is going to exponentially creep into all of our lives. We are very quickly in the next two, three years going to be using generative AI for everything without even knowing it, because we're just going to start speaking to machines. You know, everything is habit. And when new technology starts, we think it's like this new thing and, it, oh, it's for later. I don't need to understand it. But this is something that very quickly is going to become part of all of our lives. And we have to be asking the big questions of how do I trust it? How do I know that the information that it's giving back to me is actually true? So looking at those questions of guardrails and, and safety, a lot of your presentation is about the ways in which we can incorporate AI into our work, into our lives in, it seems like, some organic ways. How do you do that while maintaining this skepticism of both the ways in which AI is being maintained and ultimately trained? I think that the best use of AI and the best way to think about it is a way to help you in your work life and in your personal life. And also remain like with everything else, right? Do you believe everything you read on social media? I know that I don't, right? And if there's something that seems weird or crazy, I spend the minute or so to go either Google it or find a news source or some sort of supporting evidence before I start believing in some crazy thing. I think it's the same thing here. I also think that people who think, oh, I'm going to get the AI to write my essay for me, or I'm going to use it to write all of my emails or to respond to things without ever checking on it. I'm not sure that's where we're at today. I think we will get there. And I think that we're all going to use AI as a personal assistant in the future, but it is an assistant. I, I don't think that anyone should think of it as something that's just going to take over. Sure. Now, in this moment, what are the ways that people can better train themselves to work with AI and, and start incorporating it in their work in even just some small ways? So I'll give you a quick example from my life. I was invited to a dinner party and I didn't have time to pick up dessert. They asked me to bring dessert. I knew that the grocery store near me, I would never get parking. I live in Los Angeles. And so um, I went to an AI that's a personal assistant called Perplexity. And I said, I'm going to a dinner party at this address. What's the closest place where I can pick up dessert? It said, there are three places nearby uh, within five minutes uh, with parking where you can pick up dessert. Would you like to buy cake or pie? I said, I would like to buy a cake. It said, okay, here are the places where you can get a cake. Um, here's how much they cost. Which one would you like to go to? I picked one. They said, okay, just so you know, I'm reminding you it's the most expensive. I said, fine, sounds great. Should I order the cake for you? Yes, it ordered the cake for me. I drove to this place. I picked it up. And once I got in the car, 
I told it that I was in the car. It said, you are four minutes away from your destination. That cut out so many steps. It sounds so simple and trivial, but for me to actually have had to Google it, find all the information, it, it cut out six different steps. So small example, but for anybody who's a busy person, totally wonderful user experience. For anybody who wants to use it in their work life, I think that there are many, many uses, but I think the best way, like with any other technology, if you think about how you got into it, jump in. It's not going to eat you. It's not going to hurt you. You're not going to break anything. Just start asking questions. And then I suggest to people also that we have this great tool called YouTube. You know, when I started playing around with some of it, I looked for tutorials. I looked for people who were experts. And it doesn't take a lot of time to get comfortable with it because it's like talking to a person. So just like talking to a person, it's how you communicate. The entire questioning process is called prompting. So there are prompts. You just have to learn how to ask questions. And if you think about it, for anybody who's had an intern or somebody who works for them, talk to it like that. Think about it like it's an intern working for you. It doesn't know you, but just set parameters and you will be shocked by the responses. Also, if you Google best prompts for, literally you will get all the suggestions for how to talk to an AI. I think there are also different use cases for each generative AI model. Um, so find the one that works for what you need. But I don't think people should be afraid of it. I think there's like the biggest aha moment when you ask it a question and it helps you with something. It actually gets you to want to continue to dive into the process. All of us, just like with any new technology, should at the very least start to play around with it. All right. Well, I look forward to uh, chatting more about this on stage for the Women's uh, Leadership Conference here in Milwaukee. Anat, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you again for having me. Anat Barron is the CEO of Stashwell and the keynote speaker for UW-Milwaukee's Women Leaders Conference. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers, and the two will chat again in a fireside chat at the conference. In about 10 minutes, we'll help you plan a trip to the Milton House, the only underground railroad stop in Wisconsin that's open to the public. But first, we'll speak with a Unity Award recipient who was honored for her work making underserved neighborhoods in Milwaukee into greener spaces. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine features the five winners of its 2024 Unity Awards. The awards highlight people and organizations that are making Milwaukee a more inclusive and equitable place to live, work, and play. One of the recipients is Felice Green. She's the Director of Programming for the Milwaukee Water Commons. Green was recognized for her work in addressing social and environmental justice issues in underserved neighborhoods by helping reforest them. Lake Effect's ex-Grit Nunez speaks with Green about her efforts to educate people about environmental issues in their communities, including in her own neighborhood, Sherman Park. 
Felice, you are one of Milwaukee Magazine's Unity Award winners this year. But before we get into what this award means to you, I want to learn more about you and the work that you do. So can you tell me a little bit about the Milwaukee Water Commons and what your work consists of as the Director of Programming? Thank you, ex for having me on today. Uh, Milwaukee Water Commons is a nonprofit organization that works across neighborhoods and networks to build and develop connections that really will result in collaborations and community leadership on behalf of our beloved waters. We promote stewardship of equitable access to and shared decision-making for our common waters. As a director of programming, I get to work with nonprofit organizations, city officials, community leaders to help make Milwaukee a green city. And as a result of that, I get to lead our Branch Out Milwaukee initiative in the Sherman Park community. A part of that work includes being able to work at the intersection of environmental justice, which is to bring people together to experience water and nature in better ways. So one of those ways is the Branch Out Milwaukee Sherman Park pilot program that started in 2022. Right. And tell me more about Sherman Park. Is there any needs that you're hoping to address in the neighborhood? So we started Branch Out Milwaukee Project in the Sherman Park community because it was a long neglected community and area with high rates of poverty and environmental justice issues like asthma. So the Branch Out Milwaukee Project focuses on equity, public health, environmental health. You know, we're trying to work to educate and bring awareness to climate resilience and workforce development while maximizing really the benefits of an urban tree canopy in the Sherman Park community. Currently, we're on target this year to try to plant about 200 trees in city-owned lots, along with helping to green up private property for homeowners in the community as well. Our goal is to expand the Branch Out Milwaukee program to other marginalized communities throughout the Milwaukee area as well. So in this neighborhood, we really want to address the public health challenges that residents are facing. And we know and believe that Robust tree canopy can help improve that because it gives us better air quality. Trees remove carbon dioxide from the air and protect us from the sun, you know, along with helping to improve our mental health and wellness as well. And I remember, Felice, that you had mentioned to me that you grew up in Sherman Park. So is this something you noticed firsthand in your neighborhood and you wanted to address it? So I grew up in Sherman Park. I am a, currently a Sherman Park resident. And throughout living here, working here, playing here, I began to realize that the tree canopy in my community didn't look like the surrounding urban tree canopies. And I wanted to be able to participate in making that change so that we also in urban areas could go back to having the beautiful landscapes, the beautiful pocket parks, places where you could see the beauty of the nature. I love being outdoors. I'm a walker. I walk in my neighborhood. I walk in Sherman Park. I walk along the river walk. And I begin to notice the changes from different sides of the city that I participated in. So you were mentioning the tree canopy in Sherman Park. What are some benefits or changes that you've already noticed since making Sherman Park a greener neighborhood? I am noticing that residents are um, able to get information about tools and resources that they can utilize themselves. For example, 
rain barrels and rain gardens, working with one of our partners organizations to help get those um, on their private property. In addition to more block watch meetings and spring cleanups are happening in the neighborhood. People are understanding a little bit more about why we wanna be a plastics free community. So residents are sharing tree stories. In the next month, we are going to be working with 40 residents to plant trees in their backyards or in their front yards to really help ensure that Sherman Park will be a greener community from years to come. So how do you encourage people to come together in your neighborhood and help make this space greener? One of our partners is the Sherman Park Community Association, and we work closely with the Sherman Park Community Association to do community engagement. Part of our campaign is to go door to door to tell people about the resources that we have available to do tree maintenance, tree pruning, tree planting, and to really help to know about the resources that are available if you're looking for a rain barrel or if you're looking for housing or home repairs. We believe in strong collaborations. So we're collaborating with the SPCA along with the Sherman Park Eco Ambassadors to get the word out to residents about how they can make small changes to help make Sherman Park a greener community. So you're working a lot in the environmental space here in the community. What inspired you to focus your work on just that? I love being outside and I love being outdoors. And about six or maybe seven years ago, I was hired by a different organization to help organize older adults, uh, 50 and older, to come together to learn more about how to advocate for Lake Michigan and Milwaukee's rivers. During that time, I got a better picture about how pollution and toxins impact our health and impact the environment that we're living, working in and playing in every day. So I became a site leader to help with river cleanups and wrote letters to elected officials about ways that they should be supporting bills to protect our land, to protect our water, and to protect our air. You know, and so today I get to work in a role that inspires me to help to continue to revitalize and protect our common waters. I'm inspired to be doing the work to ensure that all of us have a stake in the health of our waters and all share in the stewardship and the benefits of our water, the benefits of being able to be out in nature. Right. And I hear a lot of what you're telling me. I can really tell that you're ingrained in your community. I mean, aside from working with the Milwaukee Water Commons Project, I, I wonder, is there someone or something that helped instill community service as a value in your life? Community service is a backbone in my family. Growing up, I can remember we were always given to holiday food drives to support families that may need a little extra support during the holidays. The extra rocks of rice can go a long way. Um, I also attend a church that strongly supports community involvement in different ways. So for me, community service has been a staple in my life. And I just happened at this time to be a part of the work we are doing in the environment. I just happen to have a lot of interest too, like voter registration and traffic safety and um, education. I'm a servant leader and truthfully at this time, I believe God has just called me to do this work and I'm grateful for the opportunity. The Bible is clear that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof in the world and they that dwell in it. I'm here and I wanna be able to do my part as a community servant, as a resident in the city of Milwaukee, 
to help build a healthier planet and a healthier planet, I believe leads to healthier people. So I'm a part of this village. My family has been a part of the village. They have passed the baton down to the next generation and I'm striving to do the same, to pass the baton to the next generation of environmentalists, to the next generation of educators, to the next generation of residents who wanna learn and be more eco-friendly so that we can have a healthier planet and have healthier people. Well, to wrap up, Milwaukee Magazine's Unity Awards is meant to recognize change makers like yourself in the community. What does this award mean to you? I want to thank Milwaukee Magazine for this prestigious award. This award means a lot to me because I work behind the scenes a lot and I am not an out front person. And this award means that the work that I have been doing in the Milwaukee community is being seen and it is being recognized as making a positive impact in our community. So I thank the Milwaukee Magazine for this honor. I'm humbled and truly grateful. Well, it's definitely being noticed, Felice. Um, I really appreciate you for taking the time to speak with me today and for sharing your work with me. Thank you, Escaret and Lake Effect for this time today. Felice Green is the Director of Programming for the Milwaukee Water Commons. She spoke with Lake Effect's Excret Nunez. You can find an article about Green and other Unity Award winners in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll take one more break, and when we come back, we'll learn about the Milton House, a former stagecoach inn that was part of the Underground Railroad here in Wisconsin. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Underground Railroad was a network of people and places that helped enslaved people emancipate themselves in the early 1800s and through the Civil War. Freedom seekers followed routes leading out of the South taking trails, rivers, canals, ferries, and stagecoaches, and found refuge in secret hideouts along the way. One of those hideouts is in Milton, Wisconsin. It's called the Milton House, and in the 1840s it operated as a stagecoach inn and a stop on the Underground Railroad. It's the only certified stop on the Underground Railroad in Wisconsin that's open for tours. For this month's Wandering Wisconsin, we'll help you plan a trip to Milton. To find out what a tour of the Milton House is like, Lake Effects' Becky Mortensen speaks with Amanda Weibel from Travel Wisconsin and Keaton Kloss, the Executive Director at the Milton House. Keaton, can you start off by sharing the history of Milton, Wisconsin, and the establishment of the Milton House? Sure. Um, so the the history of the town of Milton and the history of the Milton House are very interconnected. So Joseph Goodrich um, originally lives in New York, and in 1838, he decides to go west to see what opportunity he could find. And so he arrived to this area, which at the time was known as Prairie du Lac or Prairie of the Lakes in French. 
Um, he decided that it looked like good farmland. Um, he was at a crossroads between the city of Fort Atkinson, Janesville, Madison, and Chicago. So he thought it would be a good place um, to set up not only a town, but also to build his uh, Milton house, which was a stagecoach inn. So kind of like how we would think of it as a hotel today. So in 1839, he and uh, his wife and two kids and nine other people moved from New York and settle in this area. Joseph then founds the town of Milton. And in 1844, he constructs the Milton house. It was the two-story hexagonal building that served as the stagecoach stagecoach inn and then he builds another structure attached to it which he referred to as the block and that had rentable business spaces downstairs and rentable apartments upstairs so he used it for his stagecoach inn and then he also used it for additional business purposes and how did the milton house become a stop on the underground railroad and what made it a good safe harbor for freedom seekers so Joseph Goodrich and the majority of people who come to him come with him to the area when he founds it, and then after the town is founded, um, they were Seventh Day Baptists. Now the majority of people who come on tours to the museum have never heard of Seventh Day Baptists. They have, may have heard of Seventh Day Adventists, but they are two different religious sects. Um, but Seventh Day Baptists, even um, prior to the Civil War and really the rise of the abolitionist movement in the United States in the mid-1800s, um, were very anti-slavery. So to be part of their religion, you actually had to be anti-slavery and be committed to the abolitionist movement. So that was something that was very ingrained in Joseph before he even arrives here and the majority of the people who are in the town with him. So Wisconsin at the time, um, when we become a state in 1848, slavery is never legal here. And when in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law gets passed, which essentially allowed Southern slaveholders to come into Northern states and recapture freedom seekers and take them back into slavery, Wisconsin says that it's an unconstitutional law and they don't want to enforce it. So even if Joseph had been found out harboring slaves, there was a chance he maybe would have avoided punishment. And then just the nature of the Milton House being a stagecoach in, uh, they had 24 stagecoaches coming every day for like, so like one every half hour when the trains come in the 1850s and there's 30 some trains coming. So people are coming here all hours of day and night, all kinds of different people. And so if you saw, you know, wagon pull up to the Milton House at three in the morning, it wouldn't necessarily raise any suspicion. So it seems a little odd that the busier the place was, the more it helped Joseph run the Underground Railroad Station, but we believe that that definitely provided a good cover um, for his operation of the Underground Railroad here in Milton. And do we know what that experience would have been like for a freedom seeker having a stop at the Milton House? So unfortunately, the Underground Railroad history is very um, sparse of from a historical perspective, there's not a lot of firsthand accounts. Obviously, it was an illegal thing to do, a very dangerous thing to not only run on the Underground Railroad, but also to aid any freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad. So people did not keep good records, uh, at least written records. And then after the Civil War, even historians just didn't really have an interest in learning about the Underground Railroad. So here at the Milton House, we do have good primary sources about one freedom seeker. His name was Andrew Pratt. And he came to the Milton House, and we know that he had escaped from slavery. Beyond Andrew, most likely more freedom seekers sought refuge at the Milton House, but we can't identify a specific number. 
for Andrew, he was a unique one because he arrives in Milton um, in 1861, and then he actually lives in the community until 1865 before he moves to Minnesota. So he's a unique situation, but most likely other freedom seekers who came here were brought here uh, most likely um, with some supplies for the stagecoach in that when those were being delivered into the pioneer cabin, um, the freedom seeker would then use the tunnel that connects the pioneer cabin to the Milton house to get into the safety of the Milton house. And then they would get cover, um, shelter, hopefully some food. And then when it was time to move on, that process would be reversed. Um, we do not know what Joseph's next stop was. And that's a unique thing about the underground railroad is in our minds, we like to think of it as being a very linear, you went here and here and here, kind of a network, but it was not that smooth at all. What we know about Andrew is what we know. And then the rest is just from other ideas and oral histories that we have. Right. So you mentioned the tunnel and you mentioned the pioneer cabin. So what could people expect to see and experience on a tour of the Milton House? Yeah, so the Milton House tour typically lasts about an hour. Um, you learn, you start at the beginning, and you learn about Joseph and the founding of the town and kind of what it would have been like to stay as a guest at his stagecoach inn. That's kind of the front half of the tour. And then the second half of the tour, we shift more into an underground railroad focus. So what we're trying to do at the Milton House is just use the Milton House as a vehicle to teach people about slavery, uh, the Civil War, underground railroad, and um, what why all that was happening, why it was necessary, um, and to help people understand that there are still issues from all of that that we are dealing with today in our society. So what can we learn from history? Um, so with that part, we talk about Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Um, we have a stairwell that in 2018, we had a local artist paint a three-story mural that depicts journeys of a freedom seeker from the plantation until they arrive in Milton. And so that's a really cool and unique way to kind of get a picture of the story. And then when you're down in the cellar, we talk to you about Andrew Pratt. We talk a little bit more about what it meant and what it was like to run on the Underground Railroad in general. And then you do get to walk in the Underground Passage between the Milton House cellar and the Pioneer Cabin. And then we end in the Pioneer Cabin, which um, was actually predates the Milton House. It was built in 1837 and moved here um, by Joseph a few years later. So we do believe that's the oldest standing building in Rock County, although we can't verify it. So you definitely get to learn all the things and experience all the things. And everybody always asks, do I still get to go through the tunnel? And yes, that is definitely part of part of the tours going through the tunnel. And Amanda, what are some other things people could check out while they're in Milton? For a smaller community, Milton really offers a lot of things to see and do, so definitely plan to stick around after the Milton House Museum to enjoy some shopping, hiking, and more. There are a lot of locally owned shops that cater to a variety of interests. You can check out Hattie and Elsie, where you can discover some great home decor, boutique clothing, and gourmet food. Or there's Penayenta, which is a great place to fill out your wardrobe. They specialize in affordable, trendy fashion like women's clothing, jewelry, and accessories. And antiquers will definitely want to stop by the Goodrich Antiques and Vintage Uniques, which is actually kitty corner from the Milton House Museum. Or if you feel like taking a hike, the Ice Age National Scenic Trail runs right through Milton, and it includes this really beautiful new boardwalk section that overlooks Storrs Lake. It also continues for about three miles into nearby Janesville, and there you can connect with 30 plus miles of paved trails within the city. 
And do you have any recommendations for places people could stop to eat or have a drink? Milton has several great craft beverage makers that you're going to want to check out. Timber Hill Winery is a great stop for tastings and food. They're open seven days a week and actually moved to a brand new space just last September. They specialize in crafting truly Wisconsin wine. So they are using locally grown grape varieties that thrive in colder environments. But they also have a great food menu full of options from shareables and homemade pizzas to sandwiches and more. There's also Goodworks Brewing Company, which opened in Milton just last year, and they serve a rotating selection of craft beer that hits on all of the tastes. If you want malty, hoppy, sour, sweet, whatever is just right for you, you are going to find it there. And then if you want a classic supper club experience, you're going to want to dine at Frederick's Supper Club. They offer your staples like the Friday fish fry and Saturday prime rib, but they also get really creative with different specialty entrees. For each of you, why would you recommend people visit the Milton House? Um, well, obviously, I feel it's a very important uh, piece of not only Milton history, not only Wisconsin history, but national history. We are Rock County's only national historic landmark, which we were designated in 1998. We also are the only Underground Railroad uh, station that has been certified in Wisconsin that you can still tour. So this is a really unique piece of history that's right here in, in Rock County. Um, and so not only that, we um, try and put on, you know, you can take guided tours, but we also put on a variety of events throughout the year um, because the Milton House is more than just the Underground Railroad story. We have so much history to tell um, about Rock County, about Milton, about Wisconsin, and we just love to share that history. So any kind of history lover, um, we would love to have you come, and I promise you will get a tour that you can't get anywhere else in Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin is so rich in its history, and it's one thing to hear about it, but actually touring important sites like the Milton House Museum can really help connect us to that history. The Milton House provides such a unique look into that journey of freedom seekers, we can walk in the actual steps of the past so that we can better understand the present. The tour experience really is personally powerful. It can help shape our understanding of history. Well, Keaton and Amanda, thank you both so much for joining me for Wandering Wisconsin. Thank Thanks you for having us. It was very enjoyable. Amanda Weibel is the communications officer with Travel Wisconsin, and Keaton Kloss is the executive director at the Milton House. They spoke with Lake Effect's Becky Martinson for Wandering Wisconsin. You can learn more about the Milton House and hear past Wandering Wisconsin conversations at wuwm.com. And Wandering Wisconsin wraps up Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn how Milwaukee's traffic calming efforts have been working so far. Plus, we'll bring you our newest series called Chirp Chat, all about birds and birding in Wisconsin. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.